We are in Revelation 21. We're getting towards the end. We have a long passage today and and not as much time. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to dive into it and uh, we'll read the scripture as we go through. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, as we get close to finishing this great book of Revelation uh, that we've been in for the last year, we pray that you would give us a longing for heaven. That as we see what John saw, as we hear what John heard, it's almost like a trailer before a great movie. Our hearts would yearn with anticipation, our imagination would be awakened, that we would run headlong into the future, gloriously awaiting the heaven that you have prepared for us. Overwhelm us as you overwhelm John. Remind us of what this is all about. Lord, it's our prayer that we would see Jesus and love him and stick close to him as our great God and King. It's our prayer that one day by grace we would see you face to face. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the New Jerusalem. We've finally gotten there in uh, our passage. We've been through all the really, really hard parts, and uh, we've gotten to the good stuff at the end, which we'll finish up for the rest of the summer. You know, as we've gone along all along, uh, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, I've told you to interpret symbols as symbols. Avoid the temptation to try to come up with literal descriptions for symbols. Well, our text today is clearly filled with symbols, so many of them that they get all jumbled up, one coming after the other after the other. And uh, having uh, so far successfully avoided or uh, ignored, um, most of the popular writers whose work depends on coming up with literal descriptions of Revelation symbols, I thought it might be interesting to see what they did with today's passage. So I took a glance at a few of uh, the more popular writers that I think uh, fairly consistently strain the plain reading of Revelation by trying to force a literal explanation for all the obvious images and symbolism. And I just wanted to see what they had to say about this text. So uh, I got several uh, books and looked at them, and one of them just skipped it. You know, the New Jerusalem, the eternal holy city set forth by John, just skipped it. Apparently there was no details here worth pondering. Another asserted the literalism of the passage in terms of the city's dimensions, which we're going to read about, uh, but he offered no explanation and uh, ignored uh, all the details that John unpacks, but then launched into a highly speculative attempt to give a spiritualized meaning to each of the precious stones that serves as the uh, city wall's foundation. Third one I looked at had a nice alliterated outline where everything starts with the same letter that pushed uh, a real strict literalism but utterly missed the entire substance of John's teaching here. And then I gave up. Um, Three shots at the New Jerusalem and attempting uh, to maintain literalism where the biblical writer wrote with symbolism. I believe in reading the Bible literally, but you have to read it as it was written, 
which means you read poetry as poetry and symbols as symbols and history as history and narrative as narrative and uh, not try to force in uh, your own understanding. Now, my concern is not to criticize those guys for attempting to interpret Revelation, but it's to present two reasons that will demonstrate by, that, by forcing a literal uh, description, we actually miss out on the rich teaching uh, that we get here about the eternal dwelling place of all those who are redeemed. You know, we, we struggle with trying to understand this book literally, and I understand that. It would be nice if we had concrete, tangible descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth. You know, we try to understand how a city can be a perfect cube, as some versions say, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. Now, how does that fit within Israel's borders when those kind of dimensions would encompass the entire Greek world? How do you grasp a city that's 1,500 miles high? That's 2,500 times the height of the Burj Dubai skyscraper that is now the world's tallest building at 3,100 feet. Because 1,500 miles high is 7.9 million feet. How do you process that? How do you try to get that into your imagination? How do we explain the 12 gates? Each a single pearl extending above the wall of the city, the wall by itself, which is 216 feet tall. I mean, those are some mighty big oysters to produce those size pearls. How do you have a street made of pure gold and yet the gold is transparent? Well, you can say God can do everything he wants, and I would agree with you. But doesn't it seem more likely that the wonder of what he has prepared for the redeemed simply defies human understanding. And trying to reduce it to our level and put it in terms that we can measure diminishes what God has created. Doesn't it seem that John is using concepts and language understandable to his audience, but to give us an unforgettable image of majesty and glory and beauty and security uh, in our minds? I think that's the first reason we go astray. We miss the big picture of what God is trying to do. The second reason uh, for bringing up these issues is that it's so difficult to literally grasp John's portrayal of the holy city that I think it winds up being discouraging from trying to give it any extended thought or meditating on it or trying to understand it. It's so hard to imagine that we just give up, we say, you know, we'll just wait and see for ourselves when we get there someday. And I can understand that, but I would urge you not to give up. There is much in this passage and in the symbolism that's there to give us hope and encouragement to press on in faithfulness to Christ. Christ has indeed prepared a wondrous eternity for the church. And that's the point that John's making so that the church on earth doesn't lose sight of the church in eternity and therefore would grow despondent in the world. How does he describe the future of the church in the new heaven and the new earth? 
He presents it to us in the form of a holy city, the New Jerusalem. So the first thing we see here is the identity of the holy city, starting at verse 9. The identity of the holy city. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now one of the best ways that John teaches us in Revelation is through contrasts. He contrasts the beast and the Lamb. He contrasts the false prophet and the spirit. He contrasts the great harlot and the church. And through contrast, we better grasp the, di the um, distinctions that are intended to instruct the church. We heard similar words to these back in Revelation 17. John heard a strikingly similar call from one of the angels of the seven bulls, just as he has here. And back there it said in Revelation 17, verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Contrast that with this text, Romans 21, where it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In Revelation 17, John focuses on the harlot, <clears throat> also known as Babylon the Great. And we saw that his use of that concept explained the whole spirit of the world in opposition to God. It represented a worldly view of life without acknowledging uh, God as sovereign. Babylon represented the community of unredeemed man. But in sharp contrast, Revelation 21 reveals the holy city, Jerusalem, as the dwelling for the redeemed man throughout eternity. So you have contrast built into the text. One pictures condemnation, while the other pictures eternal life. One portrays the intoxication of the world, while the other shows the glory of Christ and his church. One ends in judgment, and the other knows unending glory in God's presence. And in this passage, John explains the church in eternity. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell us what will it be like when we arrive? What will it look like? What will it sound like? And rather than being carried by the Spirit into the wilderness, as happened back in chapter 17, when he saw Babylon the Great, here we read that he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. Obviously, it takes a lofty view to understand 
the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as the object of God's redeeming love. If we go back to uh, two weeks ago, just a bit, to fill in the context, in the beginning of Revelation 21, verse 1, John saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here is the completion of the redemption of the world. Every remnant of sin's destructive work is wiped away forever as Christ's redeeming work is fully applied throughout the cosmos. A new heaven and a new earth emerge while the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God. And next, John emphasizes God dwelling with his people, wiping away every tear from their eyes and ending the reign of death. At this point, we're left wondering about the new Jerusalem. Is this a literal city that will replace the old Jerusalem? Look again at the text. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we get our eyes ready and primed to see the beautiful bride of Christ entering the picture. But what does the angel show John? He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Sort of going back to verse 2, recapitulating what he said there. So the angel promised to show him the Lamb's bride, but instead shows him the holy city Jerusalem. So was he showing the Lamb's bride, or was he showing the holy city? And the answer is yes. For the bride is the church, the wife of the Lamb, and the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that has come down out of heaven from God, is the church in eternity as well. It may be best to see the holy city as the community of the redeemed in eternity. The church, which is the wife of the Lamb, it is the community of the redeemed, the church which involves many people from every age and from among every people group on earth all redeemed through the death of Christ on their behalf. And they exist together for eternity as one body of believers, undivided by uh, nationalism or sectarianism or racism or class or economic factors or gender. Here is the community that was elected before the world began, each one's name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and redeemed by the substitutionary death of Christ at the cross. The entire community unites around worship and service to the Lord God Almighty and to the Lamb. So quite appropriately, this community of the redeemed is called the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which foreshadows the intimate communion, eternal love of Jesus Christ with his people. This is the bride that Christ has secured through his own death and sanctified through his word and by his spirit so he might present her as Ephesians 5 tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so that's what's happening 
the Lord is presenting the church to himself. And he says here in verse 11 that it has the glory of God. And if there's one word that captures the picture that John is trying to paint here, it's the word glory. This city came down from heaven having the glory of God. How do you describe glory? In one sense, it's indefinable because it's the very essence of God himself. Throughout the scriptures, we find that word is used to describe God. The Hebrew term for which the New Testament Greek has its roots literally means heavy or weighty. That's why C.S. Lewis called his famous sermon on the attributes of God, the weight of glory. It's the heaviness of God in all of his essence and being. John qualifies this lest we misunderstand and think that the church has glory apart from God. He says the church has the glory of God. And when the glory of God fills the ta- filled the tabernacle, even the priests had to get out because the radiance of the glory was too great. The term conveys something of a outshining radiance. As John puts it, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Well, I looked up jasper. It's a quartz-type stone. It comes in lots of different colors, at least as far as we know, this side of uh, heaven. But it seems, according to many scholars, that John's description of this type of jasper is closer to what we know of as diamonds. John can only compare what he sees to those things that are common uh, to his audience, and he sees startling brilliance, radiant purity, so amazingly bright and lustrous, it seems as though light is radiating out of the diamond, and yet it is the church. God is preparing the church for future glory. Now, he's doing that through sufferings and trials and hardships and tribulations and obedience to the work, the word of God that will work uh, God-glorifying character into the church and into the people who make up the church. But rather than the ugly, dark traits of the great harlot, the church has to amplify its focus on living as the redeemed of the Lord. There's a dramatic contrast that carries through uh, from uh, chapter 17, 18, and uh, it carries through to the last two chapters here. John wants you to understand that we are to look, sound, be different than the world. And so we're to devote ourselves to preparation in this life for the next life. So the first part of the church's identity that's described here is glory. The second part is security. Is security. I thought this was kind of odd. See, in ancient cities, security depended on the size and strength of its walls. Cities without walls uh, lay open to the attacks of their enemies. Ancient Jericho was, uh, seemed to be impenetrable because it had a great wall. Yet if you remember, that kind of wall served as no security at all against the might of God. And if you're running ahead of me and thinking, but why do we need walls in the new earth? All the enemies of God have been cast into the lake of fire. Good point. <clears throat> and there's people who view this passage with strict literalism. They've gone so far to deny this is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But there's this... Uh, They've gone back in time explaining it as life in the millennium. 
But I think John is trying to use a device that his people would understand. The key to security in the ancient world is the city's wall. And here it says, as a great high wall. Later, he says it measured 144 cubits and was made of jasper. Now, the cupid is from the tip of the elbow to the tip of your middle finger. For the average sized person, that's about 18 inches long. And if you go back to the first century, I'm an average sized person. The rest of you are too tall. So it's about an 18, 18 inches long, which means 144 cubits are approximately 216 feet high. Nobody had a wall of that height in John's day. Nobody, nowhere, ever had a wall 216 feet high. And it's made of jasper or a diamond type of a stone, and it's impenetrable as well as lustrous. And the 12 angels at each gate just sort of reinforces that picture of security. If you can get through the gate that looks like a pearl in the giant wall, then you had to deal with the angels. And if you remember from when we talked about angels, these aren't little cherubs on clouds. These are great big guys with big swords. Okay? One of the things you should learn from Revelation is you don't mess with angels. Okay, you might want to, but if you really read the book, you'll see that's not a good idea. Don't do that. That's not wise. And there's 12 angels, one at each gate. And I don't think John's trying to give us, you know, specific dimensions. He's using exaggerated language to understand, give, help us to understand the security of, church, of the church in eternity. Now, if you remember the context, this book is being written to seven churches that are being persecuted and deceived in the first century. They're under great oppression from Rome. They're getting battered by the world. Just as much of the church around the world is getting battered today in our own time. But when we enter the new earth, there won't be any more security problems. The church will forever live in Christ's presence without assault or threat or fear. That is tremendously meaningful to those people in those seven churches that are wondering if they're going to be imprisoned or martyred this day. So the first part of the church's identity is glory. The second part is security. And the third part is that it's just so comprehensive. John's description of the wall of the city demonstrates the comprehensiveness of the church and God's eternal purpose and plan throughout every age. It says the great high wall had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, bringing us back to the Old Testament. And then he says there's three gates on each side. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb bringing us to the New Testament. Here's the church pictured by John, made up of Jews and Gentiles, those under the Old Testament era and those under the New Testament era. He doesn't view the church, the wife of the Lamb, as only those people who existed between the first and second comings of Christ. Just as he's shown the redeemed community by using the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, he did that back in Revelation 7, and he does it again here. The redeemed include all those elected by God before the foundation of the world, 
Jews and Gentiles, all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, Jews and Gentiles, all those who are consequently saved through the death of Christ, Jews and Gentiles. As Acts 4 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God doesn't have uh, one way to save Jews and another way to save Gentiles. So here God uses the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles in the same way that he used uh, the representation of the redeemed community all the way back in chapters 4 and 5 when he introduced the 24 elders. Our text only identifies one redeemed community, the holy city Jerusalem. And the object of God's redemptive work in both the Old and New Testament is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. God elected people out of Israel as his own. He sent his son to redeem them because as we read in Hebrews, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrificial system uh, wasn't uh, fully complete. They're not saved because of their lineage, because they're sons of Abraham, but only when their hearts are circumcised by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, as we're told in Romans 2, so that they believe God's promise of the Messiah. The Old Testament, they were saved by looking forward to the cross. New Testament now saved by looking back at the cross. And that's the church, the called out people of God, even before Christ used that term in Matthew 16. And John drives home this inclusiveness of the church with Jews and Gentiles together making up the new Jerusalem. And the gates with the uh, 12 tribes on them may signify the way to the uh, eternal city that was opened by the patriarchs as the early witnesses to God's mercy. And the foundation being the 12 apostles follows the language that we fi find in Ephesians 2. Paul clearly shows there's no dividing wall between Jews and Gentile believers were all reconciled to God. There in Ephesians 2, he says, speaking of the, having the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And he goes on, picking up chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Again, both Old and New Testament, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure, Jews and Gentiles, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have even back in 
uh, Paul's teaching letters in Ephesians, this idea that there is a foundation, there is a place, a dwelling place for God that we're going to be a part of. And his whole point is that whether Jewish or uh, Gentile, you're in Christ. There is no distinction in the eyes of God. You're part of the same building, a holy temple, a dwelling for God by the Spirit, and John would add, the holy city, Jerusalem. That's the church in eternity. It's glorious, it's secure, and it's comprehensive. Don't get lost in the descriptions of what kind of gate and how big a pearl and miss the fact that John's trying to communicate glory and security and the inclusiveness and comprehensiveness of the church. It's a place where you can get lost in the details and miss the point of the chapter. He goes on, give us more symbols. As I said, he just piles them on here. Very detailed uh, descriptions of these symbols. Starting in verse 15, we see the design of the holy city, the design. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. John isn't pulling this language out of thin air. As always, he relies on the Old Testament to provide the language for revelation. He breathes the air of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, clarifying their visions, sharpening them into an explanation of the redeemed people of God and the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah spoke of a future Jerusalem in Isaiah 62. He says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 60 gives us a detailed picture of the new Jerusalem as a place of radiance and beauty in which the nations would stream with their gifts. Ezekiel uh, chapters 40 through 48 picture a man with a measuring rod making measurements of the future temple, showing uh, its grandeur and symmetry, magnificence with the glory of God filling it. Zechariah 14 points to a day when even the cooking pots in the city would be as holy as any sacred vessel. And each glimpse lays the groundwork for the fuller revelation that John gives us here. 
So knowing that background, let's look at its layout, the layout of the city. Similar to Ezekiel, John's angel had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. I think it's unfortunate some English versions have translated the measurements into American measurements. So in some versions you'll read 1,500 miles. I'm pretty sure uh, first century Asia Minor didn't know what a mile was. Um, but listen how he describes it. He says, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. City is a perfect cube of enormous size. All 12 edges are perfectly 12,000 stadia, with each individual stadion being about 600 feet. Most scholars believe that this cube reflects the Holy of Holies, which if you remember, you go all the way back to 1 Kings 6, tell us that it, it was built in that same way, except it was 20 cubits in width, length, and height. And so it's really a small foreshadowing. As glorious as the Holy of Holies was in that time, it's just a small foreshadowing of what we're going to see in the new heavens and the new earth. And the one place where God dwelled most uh, with his people, where the glory of his presence is in the Holy of Holies. And John is telling us that uh, the eternity of the eternal city will be filled with the presence of God. And he constantly uses the number 12 as a number of completion, specifically related to God's people. And he number, multiplies it, uh, 12, the number of completion, emphasizing the completed number of the city as the dwelling place of the redeemed. None that belong will be missing. Verse 17, he says it's 144 cubits. The number 144 is the square of 12. And we already noted that number represents a full complement of the people of God. This is the third or fourth time that we've seen that number used in Revelation. One commentator says, it is the multiplication of the representative 12 tribes on the gates and the representative 12 apostles on the foundation. Therefore, it should be understood as a symbolic figure symbolizing the totality of the redeemed through all ages, securely positioned in the Lord's presence. So its layout is, a sim is symbolic of its identity. But then so are its materials. And here we get into all the, the details. There's various precious materials identified for the wall, the city, the foundation, the city's gates, the streets. And the emphasis seems to be on the great value that the Lord places on the redeemed church since the whole picture of the holy city personifies the church in eternity. It says the wall is built of jasper, that like diamonds it dazzles when light is shined on it. It doesn't produce the light, but reflects the light just as the church doesn't produce the light, but it's supposed to reflect the light. And the implication is that the church in eternity will reflect the light of God's glory with dazzling brilliance, even though it's still dependent upon him for that light. City is pure gold, clear as glass. I don't know what that level of purity is. Some of you have 24 karat gold rings. Well, this is 
you know, I think that's the highest number of carat, but you'd have to multiply it many times to get pure gold clear as glass. Transparent brilliance and a stress on purity, highlighting the glorified state of the church. The foundations of the wall are adorned with every kind of jewel, and then comes this list of these uh, various colorful yet dazzling stones that serve as the wall's foundation. I don't think it helps us to analyze each one and try to see what it means to come up with some sort of analogy. I think it is interesting that the ancient priest's breastplate that he had to wear under the Holy of Holies contained 12 dazzling stones representing the holiness of the priesthood. The fact that there's 12, each with an apostle's name, indicates again the totality of the church. None whom Christ has redeemed will be missing. None will lack radiating uh, God's glory throughout the uh, ages. The whole church is founded on the apostolic gospel proclaimed throughout the ages. And you get the 12 gates and the 12 pearls and the streets of gold, uh, transparent as glass, all emphasizing beauty and purity and brilliance and radiance of dwelling in God's presence. And you have to understand, to get the big picture, you need to understand the architecture of Christianity recognizes that we were created to live in beauty and to live in creativity, and that God is an architect. Good news, right? God cares very much about design and decor and color and light and shape and view, and so should we. When I enter into a church building, I want it to be a beautiful place. I want it to be filled with color and shape, design, symmetry. That's why so many churches throughout the ages were filled with stained glass. It was a way to reflect the glory of God that we read about here. And the reason we care about architecture as human beings is because we're image bearers of God, and God cares about architecture. And so you, what you uh, see here is some of what God has prepared as the great architect. There'll be brilliant lighting and color. It's the reason we paint the walls in our homes different colors. Or why we change the colors of our clothes and don't wear the same color clothes every day. And why for some of us the color of our cars seems to matter so much. It's all because we're image bearers of God. God cares about those types of things, beauty and creativity. And he's telling us about this great city. And all the architecture in heaven is theological. Some of you can say, you know, I'm really not all that creative. I'm not that artistic. I'm more of a theologian. You know, well, according to this, theologians are artists. That's what they are. And here, architecture communicates truth about God. You learn about God through architecture. You're learning about history through architecture. You're learning about scripture through architecture. Here in this city, everything preaches. Everything is a sermon. Everything is articulating something about God. Having looked at the identity, the design of the city, let's go inside. Let's look at what's inside the city. We're down to verse 22 now. 
I know we're going a little long today, so just bear with me. But it's nice and cool, so everybody's okay. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Since the whole of the New Testament is the Holy of Holies, all the New Jerusalem, I mean, is the Holy of Holies, God's immediate presence fills it. It has the unrestricted presence of God and the Lamb. So let's look at its temple. The old Jerusalem had a temple. It was the centerpiece of the city. It was the, the one place where God revealed himself, where they could offer sacrifices as atonement for sins, where they could find mercy from God. And the new Jerusalem changes all that. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. With the Lord always dwelling in their midst, there's no need for a temple as a place to go to to meet God. God is ever-present in all of his glory and as vast as the new heavens and the new earth may be. There is no place removed from the conscious, uh, manifested presence of God. As the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 11, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's no need for a temple building since the Lord is the temple. Second, let's look at its light. What does it mean for the infinite holiness of our God to be displayed without measure or restriction? It says the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. God's glory outshines the brilliance of the sun for all eternity. God's glory outshines the brilliance of the sun for all eternity. It doesn't fade, it doesn't dim, it doesn't diminish. It can't be exhausted. You know, if you go outside and a cloud covers the light of the sun on a fall day, you can immediately recognize that something has come between you and the sun. Something has diminished its light and its warmth. But no clouds cover the glory of God illumining his people for all eternity. And the figure of a lamp representing the lamb points to the way that Christ shines his eternal knowledge and power into our life. A lamp serves to illumine one's way, and Christ, throughout the ages, will illumine his people, will live in the light of God's glory. That's amazing if you think about it. And last, but certainly not least, we need to look at those who live there, at its people. John identifies the nations walking by it. He says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In some uh, places in Revelation, he uses the kings of the earth um, to represent the unregenerate world. But in other places, particularly in Revelation 5 and 7, we find the nations also represent the redeemed world. And here we find another example of the expansiveness of the gospel to penetrate the nations of the world 
with transforming power. Those from lowly positions and exalted positions, redeemed by Christ, walk by the light of the Lamb. They'll tell us they'll bring their glory uh, into it and the honor of the nations. This reinforces what we saw two weeks ago, that the new earth will bring forth the very best God-honoring works of mankind into eternity. The effects of the fall will be eliminated in the new earth, and according to this verse, the contributions of peoples throughout all the ages will be part of what is enjoyed to the glory of God forever and ever. It suggests there'll be great activity day after day. There'll be no night there. The gates will never be shut. There is no danger. There are no enemies. There are no threats. All that is good and noble from every culture will be brought into that city. But then without warning, John reminds us, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. The new Jerusalem is not for the unbelieving and the profane, but only for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, he's reminding us of God's grace and election and the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God on behalf of sinners. The reminder calls all of us to consider eternity, to make sure by the grace of God we're part of the holy city. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about it, uh, about that time when we arrive in the new Jerusalem. He calls it the beginning of a great holiday. I'm getting ready to go on vacation tomorrow. I can't wait. I want it to start today. I really want it to start yesterday. Um, and so this idea, the beginning of a great holiday, just sort of rang true for me. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes in the book, The Last Battle, when Aslan, who's the, the great lion, who's the Christ figure, said you could never go back to Narnia. He meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy, speaking to Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it's different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the shadow lands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And I think it's just a great image of what we're going to be going into, of what we're going to see. The Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for once again revealing the love of Christ to us. We sit here today and we often need a new perspective on our world, on life, on questions we can't answer, on things that happen this side of heaven. We pray that you would enable us to really see, to see as John saw, 
Help us to focus on Jesus. Use these visions to change us into people who trust you no matter what, who look forward to that day when we're in a place that defies description, that goes beyond our imagination, that's filled with light and beauty and creativity and radiance and brilliance. And that where we're surrounded, where we live in the glory of God, Lord, enable us to look forward to that day when we will be with you, when we will see you face to face. Do this for us in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.